All right, today uh, we are continuing our series in Romans. Specifically, these past few months, we've really been drilling into Romans chapter 8 because it's just so rich. There's so much here. Today, we're actually going to wrap up Romans chapter 8, the plan right now. And I always say, you know, right now because, you know, hold these things tentatively with an open hand. Our plan right now, next week, is to start our summer sermon series. Um, We're going to be spending time this summer in the book of Psalms. And so the plan is to begin our series on the book of Psalms next week. So if you can come back for that, that'd be great. But this week we want to wrap up Romans chapter 8. And so we're going to look at Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39. We started this section last week. We looked at the first portion of this. Today we're going to spend more time on the second portion. But I really want to read the whole thing again because it all just goes together so well. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot that we could say about this section of scripture. I want to keep it uh, as succinct as I can today. I really want to answer one really specific question about exactly what Paul is saying here. And so that's our, our goal. Um, as we said last week, this is a very celebratory passage. We said that this is Paul's victory song. And um, one of the things we saw last week is there's just this this sweep, this build as we read through it, and you'll see it again as we read through it this morning. Um, So let's look at it. Let's look at 8.31 through 39, and then we'll drill in to it together. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one under the seat in front of you. You can grab it. We're actually starting on page 944. I promised this week we'd be on 945. We'll get there. We're going to be on page 945 for the whole sermon, but we're going to start on 944. So here we go. Uh, Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Paul's main message in this passage is that for believers in Jesus, for followers of Jesus, for those who are trusting in him, that they are on the winning team. That if God is for us, this is again in verse 31, if God is for us, if he's on our side, then there's no one else who can be against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Because Jesus already won. With his death, burial, and resurrection, he defeated sin, he defeated death, he has claimed the ultimate victory, and so we who are followers, we who are joined to him, we have confidence that we will also ultimately win. We have confidence, we have hope, we have joy, we have security because we know if God is for us, 
If we're on his side, if we're on his team, that's the winning team. And even if we feel like it hasn't all played out yet, Paul is saying, but we know there's no way we can possibly lose. We will win. But here's the question. The key question, the big question I think that hangs over all of this, what exactly does winning look like? What does it mean to say we win? What does it mean to say that if God's for us, no one can be against us, that we've already won? What does it mean in verse number 37 to say in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us? And the the phrase more than conquerors is a really cool kind of interesting phrase. In the original Greek, when Paul wrote this, it's one word. And it's a word, I think, as far as we can tell, as best as we can make out, it's a word that Paul actually made up. Because it doesn't appear anywhere else in Greek literature. It's nowhere else in the New Testament. It's nowhere else. It's, it's hypernikeo, and the word nikeo is conqueror. But it's like Paul is saying, we're more than that. And so he puts this prefix hyper. And you know what hyper means? Extra, over, above. And it's like, honestly, as I think about this word, what Paul's trying to say here, it reminds me of like, Two elementary school kids who are in an argument, and they're like, well, I'm a conqueror. And the other one's like, well, I'm a more than conqueror. Because there's like no word to describe, so he makes up this word, hypernikeo. And so he's saying like, we're, I can't even express like just the normal word, we're winners. It's more than that. We're like super winners. We're extra winners. What does that mean? What does that mean to say that we're more than conquerors? What does it mean to say that we're more than winners? What does it mean to say that we win? Because, just let's put it out there. I don't always feel like a winner. Do you? I mean, I definitely don't always feel like a conqueror. I don't, and I, I, more than that, I, I sure don't feel like a more than conqueror most of the time. You're going to tell me, Paul, you're saying, you're a winner, you're winning, you're more than winning, you're more than a conqueror, and I go, I'm just not feeling it. Uh, Last fall, I was diagnosed uh, with a disease called multiple sclerosis, MS. Um, It it came about, the fact that I was diagnosed with it, it it's kind of a funny story. Um, so I was supposed to, and some of you heard about, a group of leaders from Trailhead went and climbed a mountain in Colorado last fall. Um, Steve talked about it. I was supposed to go on that trip. And I was very excited. I was very nervous. I spent the whole spring and summer trying to get myself in shape. I dieted. I started running. I was, I was like, I was in the best shape of my life, I think. Um, the day before, the day before we were supposed to leave to go to Colorado, I started having some kind of vision problems, some blurry vision, and I'm gonna try to give you the short version of this story. I ended up going to my doctor who sent me to the emergency room, and I ended up getting admitted to the hospital. The night before we were supposed to leave, I was like, oh, I really can't be in the hospital. I'm supposed to be climbing a mountain, but they're like, you know what? We need to figure out what's going on here. So I spent three days in the hospital. Um, This was in the fall, and there was a COVID spike, and the hospital, I was at Anderson, and they, the day I went in, they shut down any visitors coming in. So I spent three days totally by myself in the hospital, running through the whole gamut of tests, uh, CT scans, EKG, an ultrasound, found out I wasn't pregnant. Um, I had a spinal tap, 
um, which I thought was a band, but I had one. I had three MRIs. Have you ever had an MRI times three in three days? It was so much fun. Um, and at the end of it all, what they told me was, I thought, maybe I, was I, I thought my vision was a little blurry and I thought maybe I needed glasses. They said, no, you have MS. Um, if you're not familiar with what that means, it's, uh, it's a, a, a disease that targets the central nervous system. It kind of, without going into a ton of detail, it has the ability to hinder my functioning, motor skills, gross motor skills, fine motor skills. Um, so I found out about it because I was having some vision problems. I'd also had some speech problems in the past. Some people with MS end up paralyzed. Um, and a whole host of some people just have fatigue. It can mean all, any number of things. For me, personally, I have what's called relapsing MS, which means sometimes, uh, like right now, it's in remission, and I really don't experience very many symptoms at all. I take some medication for it, and that's about the only daily reminder I have that I have it. But I know, in the back of my head, that I have it. And it could mean this whole you know, menu of possible outcomes for my life. When I look ahead at my future, I know it could mean that you know, at some point I lose function in my limbs. It could mean that I end up blind. It could mean that I, a, a whole host of things. And depending on how anxious I feel from day to day, it could mean incredible <laughs> difficulties. Um, so, so how do I, with that, coming out of that in the fall, coming into this, looking at this scripture, look at this passage, and Paul says, if God's for us, who can be against us? And I look in my own life, and I think about this, this time that I went through and the time and what I'm facing now in that, do I look at this? Is, here's what the question is. When Paul says we're more than conquerors, do I look at this, and does more than conquerors mean that I read this verse, and I just declare, you know what? I don't have MS. I beat it. I'm a victor. I win. Is that what this means? Is that what Paul's saying? Can we read this passage? Can you read this passage? And just declare... I'm more than a conqueror, so all my marriage problems are fixed because I'm more than a conqueror. We're not fighting anymore. There's no tension. It's solved. Can we read, I'm more than a conqueror, so all my financial difficulties, done. I'm going to name it and claim it because I'm more than a conqueror. I'm rich. Is that what this means? That you look at the world around you and we're more than conquerors, so there's no racial injustice, that there's no more war, that war is over because we're more than conquerors. All my temptation to sin, I'm more than a conqueror. I'm never going to sin again. I'm not even going to be tempted to sin because I'm more than a conqueror. Is that what this verse means? Let's slow down. Let's make sure we hear exactly what Paul is saying here very, very clearly. Okay, there are two truths in this passage, both of which... Both of these truths are essential to understanding what Paul is saying. And to answer this question, what does it mean to say that we win? Here are the two truths. Number one, pain and suffering are real. Absolutely real. Number two, pain and suffering 
cannot separate us from Jesus. These truths, truths are both here in this passage, so we're going to look at it. I'm going to show them to you. And we need to understand and grasp both of them, both of them to fully hear why Paul is declaring victory for us. So let's start with this first truth. Pain and suffering are real. Look at verse 35. Paul, again, rhetorical questions. This passage full of rhetorical questions, but look at the, the, the question he asks. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? This huge list of different trials that we may face, that Christians may face in their lives. Is he saying, because it's phrased as a question here, is Paul saying these things are possible, but they probably won't actually happen? Is he saying, because he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And we know, and he's going to answer it later, that the answer is no one. Is he saying these things aren't going to touch us if we're followers of Jesus? Is that what he's trying to say? Paul's not saying that, and here's how I can say that pretty confidently as it relates to Paul, because Paul himself faced most of these things he's mentioning. In fact, if you have a Bible and you want to turn over to the book of 2 Corinthians, this is another letter Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you have one of the hardback Bibles, this is on page 970. Paul, in this other letter he wrote, Romans he wrote, a letter to one church, 2 Corinthians is a letter he wrote to another church in a different city, the city of Corinth. <laughs> and in this letter, he talks about his own life. This is Paul giving a narrative of his own life. 2 Corinthians 11, look and start in verse 24. This is Paul. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. In other words, he was beaten. He, he was struck 39 times and, and the reason for this, and there's irony in this, um, at the time they believed that if you, because this whip was so brutal that it, they believed if you hit someone with it 40 times it would kill them. So they would do it 40 minus 1. Of course, the irony is it happened to him five times. So it is brutal. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys... In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold, and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I, um, I really appreciate that Paul includes anxiety in that list. He's, he's listing this you know, laundry list of horrible physical things that happened to him. And he puts on top of that anxiety because Paul is telling us very clearly those mental issues, mental pains, mental sufferings that we go through are just as powerful. Just as powerful as physical pain and physical harm. If you're here this morning and you wrestle with anxiety with guilt, with doubt, with shame, with anything that you are tempted at times to say that's internal, it's not the same. Paul would say, Scripture would say, it's just as real. It's just as real and it's just as harmful and it's just as powerful. 
So Paul isn't saying, and back to Romans 8, Paul is not saying by asking this question that these things don't exist or that they don't affect us. See, these are real. I've experienced these things, Paul is saying. So the question is, will those things, the fact that I've experienced them, will they separate me from Christ? In fact, look at verse 40, excuse me, verse 30. Six, he says, as it is written, because this is a reference, Paul, when he says, as it is written, he's saying, from what we, we as Christians refer to as the Old Testament, what his readers would have referred to as the scripture. So as it is written, he says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is a reference, uh, a quote from Psalm 44. So Paul knew we were going to do this summer series on Psalms, so he got a jump, and he's like, I'm going to start quoting Psalms this week to just get you ready. Psalm 44, and he says, look, even scripture, even your scripture, our scripture says, this suffering, this this pain is real. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And just so you understand, this isn't just metaphorical, the being killed all the day long. It's plural because Psalm 44 in context is a psalm about the nation of Israel. And it's a lament to the fact that the children of Israel were literally being killed. They were being persecuted and physically uh, persecuted by surrounding armies, surrounding nations. It's an interesting choice for him to quote here. Because, and you get a taste of it, if you were to go back and read the whole psalm, you'll see it even more, but even just in his quote, you get a taste of the way the author, the way the children of Israel are responding to this pain and suffering, look at the very first line of the quote. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. And if you read the whole psalm, you'll see this even more. There's, at the very least, an implication. If it doesn't outright say it, and there are many psalms that do outright say it, of saying, God, we're suffering, and it's your fault. There's at, the, at the very least, they're dancing on the edge of blaming God for their suffering. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. The nation of Israel saying, because we're so different. Because you've called us out, you've made us your chosen people, and other nations are coming against us for your sake. They're attacking us. They're killing us. We're suffering even though we're following you. Paul isn't saying, and the scripture never teaches, that doing the right things will keep you from pain and suffering. There is no promise in scripture that if you do exactly what God says you should do, you will live a perfect life. Or you will live a pain-free life. And the flip side of this, please, Here, there is nowhere in Scripture that says if you are in pain and in suffering, it's because God is bringing his vengeance down upon you. Hurt, pain, suffering is not proof that God is angry with you and he's out to get you. Pain is real. Suffering is real. 
Sometimes, sometimes, especially in the church, it's not just in the church, this is true in the wider culture as well, social media, your friend groups, all of it, but especially I see it in the church, we can be tempted to try to avoid or skip over or minimize pain with, with spiritual sounding answers. You know, just cover it over. You're going through something difficult, it's okay, God will take care of it. You're good. You're going to be good. It's going to be all right. We, we want to avoid people who are in pain. And we think that we can make choices that will keep us from having to confront our own pain. Push it down, hide it, bury it, cover over it. Look, it's understandable. I mean, it makes sense because pain, look, by its very definition, pain is painful, Right? That's what it means to be in pain. And we really do have both personal and corporate motivation to avoid pain as Christians. Personally, it hurts. We'd rather be around people who aren't hurting. We'd rather pretend we're not hurting. I'd rather be around, you'd rather be around sunny, happy people who make you feel good. Not too sunny happy, that's a bit much, but, you know, just the right level of sunny and happy, right? It takes vulnerability, and it takes humility to reveal our own personal pain. That's scary. If you, if I open up to you about my pain and my suffering, what are you going to do with it? What if you use it against me? What if you don't want to be around me anymore? What if my pain makes you feel so awkward that you just move away? What if you avoid me? What if you look at me and see me as a failure? What if you use it against me in a conflict to turn others against me? So personally, I... I can be motivated personally to try to hide my pain, to try to hide my sin, to try to hide my failures. And I personally can be motivated to try to convince you to hide yours. Let's just not talk about it. Let's pretend everything's fine. Let's keep it all on the surface level so that everything's okay and we don't have to deal with anything too uncomfortable. But beyond that's personal. There's a corporate reason as well. There's a reason for the church at large. Look, we live in a very consumeristic culture, right? And so we've gotten in our heads at some point that church is a part of that consumer culture and, and we need to sell the church and we need to sell Jesus. And it's hard to sell Jesus as somebody who doesn't take away all your hurt and your pain and your suffering. It's a lot easier to sell a church that promises that if you do these things, you'll get these outcomes. It's a lot easier to sell a church that says, come here, look at all these happy, successful, pain-free people. Be like them. Do what they're doing. And you'll be happy and successful and pain-free. And preach a sermon that says, here's five steps, and if you follow these five steps, your life will be better. Your relationships will be better. 
Your finances will be better if you do these things. Plug it in and God will bless you. The extreme end of this is what we often refer to as the prosperity gospel, which says if you have faith, God's going to give you financial and material and physical gains. But all of us, even if we're not at the extreme end, all of us kind of like the idea of tell me what to do to make everything better. The problem is if we have a church full of people who are in pain, full of people who are suffering, and they're honest and open about it, then it's really a hard sell. If I say you do all these things and God will fix everything and your life will be so happy and you'll feel so much better, and then I look over and there's somebody who's been in the church for you know, the last 20 years and they're suffering, and I go, I, I see them doing all the things and they're still suffering. It's like, don't look at them. They're not actually suffering. They're just pretending. Like, so we're, we're, we have motivation, both as a church at large and as individuals, to just hide it, to pretend there is no pain. But Paul, Paul's not doing that. Paul's not covering over pain here. Paul is not saying that as Christians, Jesus' victory allows us to skip over pain and suffering. What he is saying is that Jesus' victory meets us in our suffering. And that's totally different. Look again at verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things. All those things are real. Pain is real. Suffering is real. In all those things, we are more than conquerors. Not we are conquerors because we get out of those things. We are conquerors because in those things, Jesus meets us. I want to point out just a little thing. The word no there is a little confusing because there's a sense when you first read this, it kind of sounds like he's saying, We're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. Like, no, that's not true. But that's not what he's saying. The word no there could also be translated as like, but or however, or even so. And the fact that he says in all these things shows that that's what he means. He's saying, yes, those things are true, but no, in those things, even though those things are true, the no is a reference to the question, What will separate us from the love of Christ? Paul uses a lot of rhetorical questions here. He also answers them, which is kind of nice, right? Because you're used to rhetorical questions just kind of hanging out there, and I'm supposed to think about them and come to a... Paul's like, I'm asking a rhetorical question, but I want to make sure you get it. What can separate us? Will, Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. No. None of those things can separate us. He answers it again, verse 38. He says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. I am sure, he says in verse 38, they will not be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul likes lists, doesn't he? He loves lists. 
And this is another one. And the point of this list, we don't have to get hung up on every single thing in this list because the point of the list is it's supposed to encompass everything, death and life, things present and things to come, height and depth, all these things that basically say this is everything, everything and there is nothing within the whole scope of the known and unknown creation, none of it can separate us from the love of Jesus. That's our second key point. Pain and suffering are real. But pain and suffering cannot separate us from Jesus. That's the key word here. He uses it multiple times. Separation. The promise here is that God will be with us. He will not forsake us. He will not remove his love from us. That once we are joined to him, there is nothing that can take us apart from him. The question is not, will we avoid difficulties in our life? The question is, when we go through those difficulties, because they are real, because we all will, will God be there with us? Or will we have to face them alone? You know the difference, or do you, maybe you know the difference, of experiencing pain and discomfort alone versus having someone with you? Okay, I, I mentioned this earlier, but going back to my story, when I had to go into the hospital for three days, it was right, right when the hospital closed down any visitors. I had three days of going through this questioning, this doubt alone. Now, of course, we have technology. I could call, text, FaceTime. Um, here's a really great, I was... I was in an MRI machine. My friends were literally on top of a mountain. And I was in a group text with the guys who went because I was supposed to be going. And so I'm in a hospital bed and I get a, one of the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen of a sunrise over a mountain. I'm like, oh, that would be great. <laughs> oh, back to the MRI machine, thanks, okay. Um, <clears throat> being alone is hard. Being alone is a special kind of pain. And there's a world of difference between facing pain alone and facing it with someone who loves you. And what Paul is saying here is that no pain that we will ever face if we are joined to Jesus, there is no pain that will separate us from him. We will never walk through that alone. And he's very clear. It's not just the idea of God. It's the love of God that we will never be separated from. Again, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love 
is secure. Why is that? Why can't I be separated? What if I screw it all up? Can I separate? What if, what if I separate myself from God's love? I mean, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, but what if I mess up? What if I'm not good enough? What if I don't live up to my own personal expectations of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? This is where the gospel is absolutely vital to our understanding of what Paul's saying. Look all the way back at verse 34. All the way back is the verse before. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Look at this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul makes it clear. We said this last week, but I want to say it again. It's not about us. Our relationship to God, God's love for us, is not because of us. Jesus is the one who died. Jesus is the one who was raised. Jesus is the one who secured our forgiveness, brought us in to God's family joined us to himself. Jesus is the one who did it. Because Jesus is the one who did it, it's not incumbent on us to hold on to it. It's on him. He's the one who started this thing. He's the one who's going to see it through. And he did it, and I think this is really important. He secured that victory through pain. Jesus' love for us didn't come through comfort. It didn't come through financial success. It came through suffering. It came through intense physical and emotional pain. When Paul says and quotes, the psalmist is saying, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We need to remember that Jesus is referred to throughout Scripture as the Lamb who was slain for us. Jesus knows pain. He's been through pain. And he went through pain, and we said this last week, but it's... I want to keep saying it. He went through pain for us. If my security in God, if, if God's love for me depended on me, I would be done for. I'm human. I fail. I'm, I'm physically frail. I'm emotionally frail. I get tempted. I sin. I, on my own, am not capable of holding on to Jesus. But Paul's assertion in verse 37, when he says we're more than conquerors, he says we are more than conquerors through him. It's not about us. When Paul says we're more than conquerors, he's not saying we are awesome people. He's saying we're riding on his coattails, Jesus' coattails. And that's the best place we could be. Because he is so, so, so much better. 
But, if that's true, if God really, really loves me, why do I still have to experience pain? If God really loves me, why doesn't he take away my hurt? If God, it's me personally, if God truly loves me, why doesn't he take away my MS? For you personally, whatever that thing is that you're suffering with, that you're feeling, that you're hurting, why doesn't he just take it away? Why? Look, I'm not saying he can't, and I'm not saying he won't. For me, he hasn't yet. Why not? I think the best way to answer that is the way Paul talks in here with a rhetorical question. What if? What if God's love is actually better? What if God's love is better than health? What if God's love is stronger than financial stability? What if God's love is more satisfying than physical pleasure? What if? What if I have a deeper and richer and fuller understanding of God's love because I'm experiencing that love in the midst of pain? Please, I'm not saying that to minimize your pain. Please, I'm not. I'm just saying, is it possible that God knows that we will feel a deeper and richer and fuller experience of who he is and what his love and what his grace and what his mercy truly feels like when we meet him in our deepest pain. I have a promise. I have a promise as a believer that one day I will live in a resurrected body. I will live in a body that's free from any disease. I will live in a body that's free from decay. And that body will live in a resurrected world that's free from decay, that's free from conflict, that's free from brokenness. But as beautiful as those promises are, and they are amazing, and they give me hope, and they give me something to look towards. But as beautiful as they are, what Paul tells me, what the writers of the New Testament tell me, the greatest hope I have is not that one day I'm going to be resurrected. I will be. That's awesome. The greatest hope is not that this world will be fixed. It will be, and that's amazing. But the greatest hope is that one day I will have the joy of seeing my Savior face to face the one who loves me, the one who died for me, the one who meets me in my pain and in my hurt, I will get to see him face to face. I don't always feel like a conqueror. But the truth, which is quite separate from my feelings, the truth is that nothing I endure can separate me from God's love. And God's love is the greatest treasure in all the world. I want to conclude this by making this absolutely crystal clear for you, okay? 
two, if you want to call it applications, but two things. I want to make sure that you hear this, okay? Number one, you do not have to hide your pain or pretend you aren't suffering. That's why this church is here. That's why we have a church. That's why we are together as believers. We are all suffering. This is a safe place for us to be real, to be true, to be vulnerable. And if it's not that, it has no point and no purpose. We are not going to pretend as a church. We are not going to say, if you do these things, your life will be perfect. We're, We're not going there. We're here as a church because we are all broken And we want to come together to point each other to the one who will meet us in our hurt. Point each other. We can be honest, we can be open, and we can point each other not to, here's what you can do to fix it. Here's the one who loves you. Here's the one who's holding on to you. That's why we're here. You don't have to hide your pain. You don't have to pretend you're not suffering. Number two, you don't have to be swallowed up by your suffering. That's why we're here as a church. When you admit that your pain is real, you admit that your suffering is real, you don't have to let that take you over. We are here to remind each other of the one who suffered to bring us victory. We are more than conquerors. It might not look like what we expect it to look like, We started by asking this question, look, if we've won, what does it mean to win? What is winning? Paul's pretty clear here. Winning is loving and being loved. He says it over and over in this passage. There's no love that's stronger than God's love. And there is nothing. If God is for us, if God loves us, there is nothing. If he... If he was willing to sacrifice his son because of that love, there is nothing that can separate us from that love. Let's pray. I'm going to pray. Put some questions on the screen. We can take a few moments to reflect, and then we'll share communion together. Let's, Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your love. God, I know that in this room right now, watching online right now, there are people who are in pain. I know that I have friends who are in mourning, who are grieving a loss. I know I have friends who are going through difficulties in their marriage, in their families, with their kids, with their parents. I know there are... I know there are people in this room and watching online who are going through physical hardships right now. And God, I believe that you will meet them in their pain. That your love will meet them in their suffering. And that your love is greater than any other treasure they could ever hope for, I could ever hope for. God, my prayer this morning is that we as a church 
would be in real and tangible ways an expression of your love. Out of the overflow of your love to us that we would pour out that love on the pain and the hurt and the suffering that is around us. That we would be on mission to show your love to each other and to the broader world around us. Because your love is so much Father, in your name I pray. Amen.